Please turn, if you would, in your copy of God's Holy Word to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, as we continue our exposition of Luke's Gospel. Last time around, as you remember, John was filled with some doubt over whether Jesus is the Christ. And he sent two of his disciples to confirm whether Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus showed John, or he showed them, to show John that he alone fulfills the works of God that God said Messiah would do in the scripture. Jesus proved that he is the Christ. And if it is not Jesus, then there is no Savior at all, for that time has come and gone. So with this reminder of where we were, let us pick up where we left off in Luke 7, verse 24. Luke 7, verse 24. And uh, give your attention now to the reading of God's holy word as we consider verses 24 through 28. These are the words of God. Let us receive them as such by faith. And when the messengers of John were departed, he began to speak unto the people concerning John. What went he out into the wilderness for to see? A reed shaken with the wind. And what went he out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment. Behold, they which are gorgeously apparelled and live delicately are in king's courts. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet. Yea, I say unto you, and much more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. For I say unto you, Among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Amen. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray for the preaching. O holy God, we come now to see our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, he asks, what have we gone out to see? And we pray, Father, that the answer in every heart here is that they have come to see Jesus. And and Father, we know that they cannot see Jesus unless your spirit blesses the preacher to preach up Jesus. So we pray that you would help the spirit, help the preacher by the spirit of the Lord preach Jesus, that we would see Jesus Christ in the preaching. And we pray that the, those who would hear the word would be opened by the spirit of the Lord as well to see the beautiful and glorious savior that we proclaim in the gospel. And for all of this, Father, we pray that you would let my speech and my preaching be not with the enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that their faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but rather in the power of God. We ask this now for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, friends, it is truly a marvelous, marvelous thing to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. In Matthew 13, Jesus likens the kingdom to a pearl of great price as a treasure hid in a field. That when men discover the inestimable value and worth of the kingdom of God, that they would give all that they possess to obtain it. That they would even be forceful to force themselves into the kingdom and press into it. But ultimately what makes the kingdom of God most precious is the king of the kingdom, Jesus Christ. His heart, especially towards those who are in the kingdom of God. And today we see his heart once again. And another aspect of what makes him precious and worthy to be adored. That he arises on his own volition, friends, to defend his servants that serve him. 
And we remember so many truths in the Bible, even one such as this. If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 1 John 2, 1. And it is the work of our Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ to be an advocate of those who are his. Again, what a privilege, beloved, to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. To have the king herself defend us and fight for us. That we will never have to defend ourselves before God and other men. Jesus Christ does it himself. And that's what we will discover in this text if we have eyes to see it. And so, with that introduction, our theme is Jesus defends his kingdom servants. Jesus defends his kingdom servants. And we'll consider that theme under two heads on your outline. First is to consider the king's defense. And second is to consider the king's kingdom. The king's defense and the king's kingdom. First, the king's defense. And let's pick up where we left off last week. In sending John's disciples back with a message proving that Jesus is the promised Christ, our Lord knew and understood that John's good name might suffer. Perhaps Christ's own disciples in their own heart were murmuring over John's doubts about their Lord. And what you see here is with no external compulsion, nobody asking, nobody asking, will you defend John? Jesus takes it on himself to defend the baptizer. The Apostle Paul, you remember him. What did he say in prison as he waited his own execution? That, that all men had forsaken him. None stood with him. But what did he know of Jesus? Notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. That's the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ towards his servants, people of God. It's born out of that compassionate nature of the Lord you have seen thus far over and over again in the gospel according to Luke. But added to compassion is actually obligation. He has laid on himself an obligation in the word of God. In 1 Samuel 2.30 he said, For them that honor me, I will honor. And them that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. What you observe here is Christ holding fast to that solemn vow as he defends John. For them that honor me, I will honor. And so in verse 24, when the messengers of John were departed, take note of that, when they were departed, he began to speak unto the people concerning John. And in that we observe what a wonderful truth this is, that the Lord's defense of us is often unseen by those he defends. He defends John the Baptist after his messengers leave, and John never once heard of it. What you have to be confident of, beloved, is that even in the heavenly places, and we'll consider that in Hebrews 4 this afternoon, even in the heavenly places, Christ intercedes for us, even when we do not see it. It's a glorious truth that you have no idea. You have no idea the things the Lord is saying and doing on your behalf. In the heavenlies. But believer, you must believe he is doing it. You must rest assured he is that if you are his servant, he truly does defend you. Now, three times Jesus asked the people, What went ye out into the wilderness for to see? And you probably heard that as I read the scripture. He asked this in verses 24, 25, and 26. And this forms essentially the backbone of his defense of John. And what he is doing is he is bringing 
to remembrance of the people, what they themselves witnessed of John as a nation. He reminded them of their own experience of who John was. And what is necessary for us to understand is this, that we who experience and even we witness, right, even the godly man or woman, what he is reminding them of is this truth that plagues are sinful flesh. What we often remember of a person is the worst of them and not really the best of them. Oftentimes we will reduce a man's ministry or a person's conduct in this world around their failings rather than those things that they have done in service of the Lord. But the Lord himself says that their, their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. It's a wonderful truth for those of us who serve the Lord. So let's consider these, these three characteristics of John in turn that the Lord draws out. First he asks in verse 25, was John as a reed shaken with the wind? When you saw him, did you see him as a man that was mutable, as a man that is often wavering in his opinion? In other words, he is reminding them, John was a steadfast man. He never wavered in his doctrine. He never wavered in his conviction. He never wavered in following the Lord. Yeah, perhaps he was plagued with some doubt as his end came near of whether Jesus was God's Messiah. But he never once wavered on what the Messiah was and what the Messiah came to do. You saw that last week. He never once wavered either on man's need for faith and repentance to be saved. And when Herod brought the force of persecution on him for persecuting, uh, for preaching against Herod's sin, did John waver in that? No. He went to the chopping block rather than recant. He did not flinch. He did not tinker with the law of God in order to curry favor with Herod. He was as steadfast as other steadfast men. We remember men like Andrew Melville who preached, you know this boys and girls, to King James. You are God's silly vassal. There are two kings and two kingdoms in Scotland. There is King James, the head of the commonwealth, and there is Christ Jesus, the king of the church, whose subject James the sixth is, and of whose kingdom he is not a king, not a lord, not a head, but a member. You know what Melville, like John the Baptist, paid for that? Four years in prison, an exile out of his beloved Scotland to France where he would die. But like John, he was willing to pay the cost to stand for King Jesus. And certainly Christ defended Melville for that. He honored him for it as he promises. Because even today our children learn of Andrew Melville. But how much more so Christ is speaking of John the Baptist and Melville and servants who have that heart in heaven right now. Well, God's word, beloved, as we consider the nature of John, says that we must be a man like John ourselves or a woman of that sort of character. Ephesians 4.14 tells you this, that we henceforth be no more children, what, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. You are called to be steadfast in your convictions if your convictions are scriptural. Now, if you cannot defend your practice or your, your, um, your knowledge or your doctrine from the scripture, then change your convictions, yes, and do it now. But if you're convinced of the Bible and the truth the Bible teaches, you must not run from fad to fad, as so many do. But you're to be anchored to true biblical teaching and practice. I'll just say something that we have experienced, not necessarily in this congregation so much, but as a denomination, 
Many men and women become Reformed Presbyterians because they love something of the movement, right? They love the stance we take for Christ's crown and covenant. They discover the rich history of the Covenanters. They love that the church's history is filled with men like Knox, Melville, Rutherford, Cameron, and women like Jenny Geddes. But if that is what roots you, beloved, and not the scriptures that teach these things, you will be like a reed shaken with the wind. And I'll say again, some have come into our denomination for its history. But then they leave to Rome or Constantinople because they love their history more. At the end of the day, what they do is they abandon the gospel. They are a reed shaken with the wind by every wind of doctrine to and fro. Instead of remembering what Jude 3 says, that there is a faith once delivered unto the saints. And that faith is described in the Holy Scriptures. There's no need, beloved, to run to and fro to every wind of doctrine. What you must do is be anchored by the Scripture. If you are rooted in it and you are found in it, you will be as John was, never shaken, never tossed about. Even when you have doubts, you go to the Scripture, as you heard last time, to have them resolved. So that was the first question. Second, in verse 25, Christ asks, If they went to see a man clothed in soft raiment, behold, they which are gorgeously apparelled and live delicately are in king's courts. You remember, boys and girls, how uh, uh, John the Baptist was described in Matthew chapter 3. John had his raiment or clothing of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins, and his meat was locusts and wild honey. That's what most remember of John the Baptist, don't they? But Christ's point here in asking the question is this, as they remember John's manner of living, John was no soft or effeminate man. That's actually what the Greek word under live delicately means. He's not an effeminate man. He doesn't live delicately. He doesn't have the softest clothes. You know, it's interesting, right? Sometimes you look in in history and you look at how princes and kings are clothed and you ask, is that a man or a woman? You can't even tell sometimes because their clothing is so soft. John the Baptist was no soft man. He was not interested in earthly favor and the luxuries of this life, friends. He had no interest in currying favor with princelings. He had no interest in getting the best invitations to their parties. He had no care what any institution, civil or ecclesiastical, thought of him. But it was not a who cares, I'll do what I say attitude, right? Uh, This is what you see too much in the culture today. I do what I do. doesn't matter what anybody thinks. That's not John. No, John cared what the Lord above thought, and that was it. And that was it, friends. He didn't care if anybody mocked him or laughed at him because of his manner of living. He was never in it for the love and adulation and finery of this world. His meat, like Christ's, was singular, to do the will of God. In the same way, Christian, you're not to be consumed with the fine things of this world either. And what let me say is here, as you consider John and and the saints that have gone before that are of his his nature, when the Christian finds a fork in the road, right, uh, one leads to difficulty, one leads to denial, one leads to Christ's will, and the other leads to comfort in this world and living for this world, the Christian takes the first path, difficulty, denial of self, but the blessing of following Jesus Christ. What does Jesus say? Those in the kingdom deny themselves, they carry their cross, right, and they follow after Jesus. And John was such a man. 
You can see it. It's a man of constant self-denial, singularly focused on God. And the ministers of God today, in every age, are especially called to this kind of life and service. What did Paul tell Timothy? Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Christ. 2 Timothy 2. Enduring hardness to be a soldier of Christ. This is a quality, beloved, that is so lacking in many of us today. You know, we live truly in a very delicate and soft society. Right? We, we talk about being triggered, don't we, in the popular culture. Right? We are a society where we cannot even handle criticism anymore, biblical or not. And this has affected ministers in our society tremendously. Men often do not have a spine or a backbone. Not all men, let me clear about that. But many, when the going gets tough, they often will change their ministry to suit the culture around us, to alleviate their hardness. What a terrible thing that is to observe. But not John. John went all the way to the chopping block. He endured hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Now, to be clear, as you consider John's manner of living, the Christian, even a Christian minister, does not need to be an ascetic. But that said, the Christian does not live for a life of ease. A disciple is called to count the cost for following Christ. Maybe you need to hear this, beloved, because many Christians have gotten sorely depressed because their life is hard. And they think that Jesus has come to give them a life of ease. But if you would just shift your thinking a bit, beloved, shift your thinking and say, this life may very well be hard for following the Lord. We would all better endure it until the end, and we will not be distressed or depressed, but we will endure by the grace of God. And not just count the cost, really, but we must be happy to pay the cost, no matter what. Matthew nineteen twenty nine. Everyone that hath forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive an hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. So many have abandoned the Lord to gain a delicate life in this world for a few paltry years or decades. Which is why the Lord said what? Remember Lot's wife to those who do the same. But what the Christian knows is that while ease is never promised in this life, in fact, the contrary is the promise of the Bible, right? Hardness, the jeers of the world, these are the things that the Scripture promises. We endure why? Because the promise is better. The eternal weight of glory. 2 Corinthians 4.17 For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. And what I want to say in that, friends, is this. There is no bait and switch in the Bible. It proclaims self-denial, and it proclaims that affliction is often our portion, and especially so when you follow the Lord very closely. For to do so is to put you in conflict with the world, the flesh, and the devil. But how great the reward is. For Christ himself is your portion in life and death. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. Lamentations 3, 24. And that's where we have to be, friends. This is where the, the uh, 
the value of the kingdom of heaven is, is to know the king. It's to know the king and to value the king of the kingdom and to say, if all else is removed, if I must suffer in the wilderness, if I must suffer in the dungeon, I have Christ. And that is more than enough. That is more than I deserve. I have him. And then the third question comes. Verses 26 to 28, the Lord asks what they saw again, a prophet. Yea, I say unto you, and much more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. For I say unto you, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. And we'll leave that verse there. John, uh, uh, Jesus rather, reminds us that John has a very unique position in God's plan of redemption that John was the greatest prophet of all. And that's staggering when you think of Elijah and Samuel and other men. But he's also not just a prophet, he, not just the greatest, but more than a prophet. What is his explanation? John is the forerunner of the Messiah. Jesus cites Malachi 3.1, you remember it from our time in the book, where God says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple. John is that messenger. And that's a unique privilege that no prophet ever had to go before God himself, to be the trailblazer for God. And that is also proof of what doctrine? That the Messiah is God. That the Messiah is God in the flesh. And boys and girls, you remember Malachi wrote about 400 years before Jesus Christ prophesying that after John the Baptist would come, the Lord shall suddenly come to his temple. And the Lord Jesus did. Months after John's birth, he came into that temple. He was received by by those dear saints, Anna and Simeon. When he was 12, he astonished the teachers of the law in that place. He cleansed it later on of money changers. He fulfilled Haggai 2.9 as well. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. You know, the Jews for for a long time grappled with Haggai 2, saying, how can the glory of this latter house, this, this paltry temple, compare to Solomon's great and marvelous temple? that was built with all the abundance that David, King David, had procured. How is this house going to exceed that glory? You know, many wept when the second temple was built. But we know why the glory of the second temple was greater, friends. Because Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, came to that temple. As promised in Haggai 2.7, And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. Where is that glory found? In Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, Jesus destroyed that temple too after he gave us the peace that God promised would come when God came to the temple for its purpose had ended. And so John was more than a prophet. He was the very herald of Jesus, God in the flesh. And what you must understand then with John and Jesus is that they are inextricably bound together. They are bound together. And that's why this gospel begins with both of their births. What you must understand is that if John is the herald of the Messiah, 
then Jesus must be the Christ. And if Jesus is the Christ, John must be Messiah's herald. For the timing of these prophecies are excruciatingly exacting. Haggai, Malachi, Daniel, and other prophecies require John to be the forerunner of Messiah. Otherwise, you think of it, that second temple is gone and buried. And the Lord of hosts never came if this is not the Messiah, Jesus. And one day, beloved, as Romans 11 says, God will remove the blindness from unconverted Jews and they will see that. They will see that. And they will embrace Jesus as the Messiah as we have. You need to think of it this way, friends. The day John's head fell off his body, it sealed the truth that Jesus is the Christ and we wait for no other. And so you see here how the Lord defended and vindicated his servant John. And he will, beloved, you have to see this is the nature of Christ. He will vindicate and he will defend all of you who serve him, especially like John who sacrificially gave his life for the Lord. Do you not think, friends, that the Lord will, will, will give those who have gave of their life, who have poured themselves out as the Apostle Paul poured himself out for the service of Christ, do you not think that he will rise up to defend such men and women? You need to take this text as a token to prove that he will honor and he will uphold all those who serve him. And as you see this is the nature of Christ, let that spur you on as you sacrificially serve the Lord. That you understand that as you sacrificially serve Christ, he honors all of it. And that is meant to spur you on as well, to give of yourself, to deny yourself, to follow the Lord wholeheartedly, even if it brings you in conflict with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And no matter your calling, whether you are a minister or member, all believers are given a role of service in Christ's kingdom. Whether you think of this, uh, parents, whether it is the raising of your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, more than any time else in recent history, that is a sacrificial service to God in a society that is going the other way. Many of you have sacrificed income. You have sacrificed uh, a nicer place to live, several vacations you could take if both husband and wife worked full time. Many have sacrificed all of that giving up the pleasures of the world to give your children a Christian education. You've given up much for that. But you have to also think of it this way because we can still sin in this. You must realize you do it for the Lord's sake and not even for your children's sake. And that is what actually turns the hinge in your heart. When your children, if the children do not respond to the Lord, what will comfort you, beloved, is that you did it for Jesus. Ultimately, not even for them. And that is what comforts you that the Lord will honor you if you have honored him in all of this. If you have sacrificed and you say to yourself, it seems like no good has come of it, the Lord will honor you for it. And you think then of other areas of service, service as you share the gospel who do not know Christ. You know, to speak of sin, to speak of hell, to speak even of free grace to sinners brings you in contempt and conf conflict with the world. It really does. But if you do it for Christ, you will let them laugh at you. You will let them deride you. You will let them do whatever they do to you because you know Jesus will defend you and honor you. And what of your service to the Lord and your own personal consecration to the Lord? 
You're called to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. All of us are called to sacrificial, self-denying love and service to the Lord who has saved us. And he even says, say nothing of it. Say, I am just an unprofitable servant. I have done what is my duty to do. You know, I was thinking on this, meditating on this, that often you find the conflict comes in the church more than you find the conflict come outside the church. Today, many Christians will call you a legalist if you consecrate yourself wholeheartedly to the Lord. They forget that a legalist seeks merit with the Lord, but a believer, they serve him from a heart of adoration. And if you are despised or looked down upon for following the commandments of God, you say, no matter, let them deride me, the Lord will defend me. Them that honor me, I will honor, but them that despise me, and that includes the ways of God, are lightly esteemed. Now, the other thing you want to see here is that Jesus followed the ninth commandment in all of this, and we must too. You know, the obligation of thou shalt not bear false witness is including the uh, need to defend the good name of others. You know, we can be saved because Jesus does it. You see it here clearly. Jesus defends John. And so we know that we have kept the ninth commandment in Christ if our faith is in Christ. And we rejoice to see this because this is a record of our own righteousness in this text when Jesus defends John. But we must also have a heart to do this ourselves. We're not to take in gossip about others. We're not eager to pounce on others' faults. You know, one of the most natural things for the flesh is when when we see John here, the Baptist, stumble, is to say, can you believe what the man did? And then spread that around. You know, John, he's full of doubts. He is, as we might say today, doubting Thomas, which again is another man the Lord has vindicated because he gave him faith. But we often speak ill of others. What I would say is never reduce the entirety of a man or woman to their failings. But you are to remember the good in them, especially if they are believers. I must leave this heading here. So let's turn to our second, which is the king's kingdom. Now look at the rest of verse 28. He that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he, speaking of John. Now this is an astonishing text. For as great as John was, astonishingly the least of us in the kingdom of God have a greater place than John. Now, John was a great godly man. Jesus does not say that we are greater than him in that way. So you have to understand what he's saying. In terms of privilege, in terms of privilege, beloved, we in the kingdom have a greater place than John. You think of it, even our youngest children have seen things that John never did. The crucifixion of the Lord of glory for the sins of his people. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And you see the wrath of God upon the Lamb of God. You have heard him say, it is finished. You know of Christ's death, his burial, his resurrection, and 40 days later, his ascension to the right hand of God the Father. You have seen that the entirety of the world now sets their calendar to Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. We have, as well, a complete and perfect Bible that reveals mysteries John never knew. We have the revelation, as well, that shows how all things will come to pass and how Christ will conquer. You have seen the explosion of the church upon the world in the book of Acts. 
Not with the swords of steel, but with the sword of the Lord, with the word and with prayer. These are things that John would have marveled at. And he would have longed to see with his own eyes. What did Jesus tell his disciples about their privilege in the kingdom? Matthew thirteen sixteen through 17. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For verily I say unto you, that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which ye see, and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear, and have not heard them. Godly men and prophets long, friends, to see what you and I take for granted. And I suppose that's the most convicting thing of all. The blasé attitude that we have to the things we have. What did we hear of the suffering prophets who did not live to see Christ's day? And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. God having provided some better thing for us that they without us should not be made perfect. Hebrews eleven thirty nine through 40. You know, we on this side of the cross, what a convicting thing. We take for granted what the souls before the cross longed with every fiber of their being to see. The incarnation of the Son of God, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, the rule and reign of Christ. They all wanted to see that. They wanted to see the kingdom of God come in power. Remember, this was Simeon's life drive, fulfilled when he held Jesus. Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. Luke 1, 29-30. What a thing it is, friends, that souls have come into this world longing to the point where they say, Lord, don't take me before I see Christ. And for us who have seen him, we take him for granted. And we have seen far more glorious things than they, the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, as well as the incarnation. And you think of all the other privileges, right, that we have that they did not share in. The ceremonial laws, all done away with. No need to sacrifice bulls and goats year after year. You think it is hard to come to church on time. Imagine making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, constantly taking animals that must die and die and die for your sin. Maybe those saints in some ways, as they saw animals screaming, their blood coming out, understood the heinousness of sin more than we do. Though we have the reality in Christ. We have direct access to the throne of grace by Jesus' blood, as you'll hear tonight. And we have the Spirit of the Lord poured out in such great measure upon us that unlike Moses who veiled his face, and this man alone met with God, the Bible says of believers, but we all with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Second Corinthians 3.17 We have access, if we would just go to the Lord in the Spirit, we have access to such grace and mercy that the people of old did not have. You, least in the kingdom, have greater revelation and greater privileges than John and I dare say Moses. And so with such privileges, friends, let's ask in our time remaining, what is this kingdom that has been spoken of so gloriously and how do you enter into it? Well, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven as it's referred to in Matthew is no earthly or carnal kingdom. 
Many miss it. This was the problem of the Jews at the time of Christ, thinking that there was going to be an earthy kingdom. The Bible says it's a spiritual kingdom. Romans 14, 17, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. It consists of the very best things. (laughs) And we don't see it that way, do we? Righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Ghost. These are the very best things. The best things that we could have. It's righteousness. This is a kingdom where the righteousness of Christ is freely given to sinners so that their sins are entirely covered by the Lord. And then the rule of life for its citizens is one of righteousness too. The rule of God, the law of God governs the kingdom and governs its citizens. And friends, you live in some ways in a very interesting time in this nation especially because it is becoming clearer to us what lawlessness and unrighteousness is like in the kingdom out there, in the kingdom of sin and Satan. And the kingdom then, if it is a kingdom of righteousness, as you see the rule of Christ and what following the laws of God, not for our salvation, but to live as citizens of the kingdom, the kingdom of God, which is the visible church, becomes the greatest contrast on the earth of what the rule of God is like. And it must be that. This is why when the church is filled with lawlessness and is scarcely different from the world, the kingdom of God, you say, must not have come in power. But when the kingdom comes in power, the people in the kingdom live otherworldly, heavenly life. Their prayer is constantly, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. That's the kingdom prayer. And we in the kingdom then are those who have the righteousness of Jesus that saves us, but then walk righteously with the Spirit's help in the kingdom. And then Romans 14 says there's peace in this kingdom. You know, the one thing everyone says they want, and those in the kingdom have it, peace with God, peace with, of their conscience, and peace even between its citizens, to the point where there are, you know, it's so wonderful. Sometimes we go to our synod meeting, and you see men from nations like Pakistan and India, that are, or from maybe Korea and Japan and China, And you see these nations, these kingdoms that are at odds with one another. But these men who are in Christ, in the kingdom of God, the visible church, they embrace and they hug each other. That is the work of Christ. There's peace in the kingdom between God and man and man and man in this kingdom. And then there is joy. What joy we have over our sure hope in Jesus and we rejoice over it. We have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, Romans 5, verse 2. And all of that comes to us spiritually by the operation of the Holy Spirit in our heart. Righteousness, peace, and joy are found among no kingdom among men. And that's what makes the kingdom glorious to those who have faith in Jesus. And why the Lord said it should be precious to us over all things in Matthew 13. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Why is it precious? Because it gives us a sure hope for the soul, friends. It shows that we have been reconciled to God. It gives us an eternal inheritance. It says God is our Father, Christ is our Savior and Lord. And you would think then, right, as in the parable, something of this value, of this great inestimable value, because as the Bible asks, what is the value of your soul? 
It is incredibly valuable. Something of this value then that has procured your soul eternally. You would think then, if we were thinking of the kingdoms of this earth, it must come at a great price to possess it. You think of the neighborhoods and the zip codes of this earth. The most desirable zip codes cost a lot to enter. Clubs of great uh, worth cost a lot of money and dues to be a member of. But not the kingdom of heaven. To possess it, friends, costs you nothing. Though it costs Christ everything. It is freely given. In Mark 1, 14-15, we hear, Now after that, John was put in prison, same time as this. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. So this is the kingdom of God he is preaching. And he says how to enter it, saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. That is how you enter the kingdom of God, friends. You repent of your sin, you turn from your sin, you turn to God, you turn to new obedience, and you believe the gospel. It is simply faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of the kingdom, that brings you into the kingdom of heaven. You need to listen to the Bible's instruction on this, and I preached this yesterday out in the open air. Romans 10, 9 through 11. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, Thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, and think of Jesus defending John, the scripture saith, whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. Believe on Jesus. Believe that he died for sinners and was raised from the dead. Confess it with your mouth and believe it with your heart and you shall be saved. And you shall enter into the everlasting kingdom of God forever. And sinners, because sometimes we need to hear this as you might come into a church and you see everybody seems to have together, which we don't, of course. We are all sinners who need Christ. This is a very inclusive kingdom. I want you to hear this. Every kind of sinner and every kind of person is invited. Matthew 13, again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind. Every kind, beloved. The Lord does not exclude any from coming. Not Jew, not Greek, not any kind of person ethnically. Not any kind of sinner. You see in 1 Corinthians 16 that the homosexual, that the blasphemer, all are invited to come to the Lord for salvation. All kinds come into the kingdom. John 6.37 says, Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. The Lord excludes none. You exclude yourself. Christianity, if you've never heard this before, is not about being good to be saved, but is simply of this sentiment. God have mercy on me, a sinner. And as we serve the Lord, right, as we do the work of the gospel in this church and in every church that proclaims the word of God, we rejoice, friends, as servants of the Lord, to know it is not just inclusive, it is an expansive kingdom. God has promised it will grow and grow and consume the entirety of the earth. Isaiah 9-7, speaking of Christ, Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with justice, judgment and justice from henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Jesus is zealous for this kingdom. And it will expand and expand and expand upon the earth. 
Souls will be drawn into the kingdom when we proclaim the very message Jesus did about the kingdom of God. Repent ye, repent ye, and believe the gospel. So I pray, friends, that the Lord opens all of your eyes, all of your eyes to see your need to be in this kingdom. Born in sin, we come into the world in what theologians call the kingdom of sin and Satan. Ephesians 2, 2, 3 proclaims us, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. You come into this world, not into the kingdom of God, but in this kingdom that uh, by nature makes you the children of wrath. And the end of the book says that those who are still in that kingdom, who don't flee to Christ for mercy, they will be cast, in the entirety of that kingdom will be cast into the lake of fire on the last day because of their sin, because of their rebellion against their Lord and their refusal to submit to him. And the question so often in the Bible is, why perish? Why perish with the kingdom of sin and Satan when you can be in the kingdom that shall not be destroyed? When you might have this glorious king that you have heard of in Luke 7 that defends even the humblest of his servants. As you sing, so many sing this without understanding. So many pray this with no understanding. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me, the rule of Christ. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Psalm 23, 4 through 5. You take consolation in that only if you are in the kingdom of God. For that promise is just to Christ's people. And you think of this as well. You know, we've talked about the duality of Satan. You know, Satan is so subtle. On the one hand, right, he always induces you to sin. He, just as you see in the early parts of Genesis, right, in the fall, he says he makes sin so tempting to you. It's so beautiful. If you sin, there's no big deal if you sin. In fact, it'll be to your good. And then what happens when you take and eat? He becomes what the Bible calls the accuser of the brethren, doesn't he? Yeah, this is his ploy, of course, right? It's how he works. He accuses the consciences of those who believe in the Lord. He tells you, uh, believer, now you are too sinful to enter heaven. How can you go and repent to the Lord? Why can you go to the throne of grace when you are so filthy? How can the Lord ever accept someone so filthy and so unclean? But what does the scripture say to that? And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now is come salvation and strength and what? The kingdom of our God. And the power of his Christ for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which has accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto the death. Revelation 12, 9 through 11. The power of Christ casts down our great accuser, Satan. And every voice, right, we, we confess this in the catechism, that on the last great day, the Lord Jesus Christ will vindicate us before both God and man. And every voice that accuses the saints will be silenced by Christ. For we overcome not by our works, but by the blood of the Lamb. And because of that, no sin sticks to us, for Christ paid it all. You must see, friends, that ours is such a victorious kingdom, beloved of God. 
And to be in the kingdom is to know for sure that good will triumph over evil. So many people have this vain thought, right? That, yes, I know things are going to work out in the end, and they're unbelievers. But we know for certain that good triumphs over evil because King Jesus has all power and will conquer all evil. This is the safest place to be, friends. This is what the Bible calls a kingdom unshakable. And if you are in it, friends, it says, if you have received an unshakable kingdom where your eternity is secure, it says, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, 28 through 29. You know, in Matthew's account, and I'll close with this substantially, um, he reveals something that Luke does not in our text. In Matthew eleven eleven, you're going to hear what we've heard. Uh, Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist, Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. We've just heard that. But he adds verse 12 in Matthew 11, which is not part of Luke's account. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. And what that signifies, beloved, in the Greek language is that uh, what suffereth violence signifies is that the kingdom is taken forcibly. That since the days of the preaching of John the Baptist, right, as he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, a great desire has come into the hearts of God's people to enter this kingdom of righteousness, peace, and joy. That those who come into the kingdom pursue it. They pursue heaven and the things of God with great forcefulness. That's the same sense as Luke 13.24, which you know. Strive to enter into the straight gate. Strive. To follow the narrow path, in other words. And I thought on on the value of the kingdom, right? And my mind went to, because my mind was seared from this growing up when these things were more common, I think, before Amazon. And I thought on Black Friday. You remember when shoppers would force themselves into stores, even trampling others, to get items of great value but had been reduced in price? Right? You get a television for maybe 10% the cost. But there's only two. So you must all force yourself into the store. That's a picture, friends, of what striving for heaven is meant to be like in our hearts. The kingdom of God suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. You see, friends, if we had in our minds and hearts the kingdom as the pearl of great price, we would not pursue heaven half-heartedly, but wholeheartedly. It would drive us, friends. It is meant to consume us. Colossians 3.2 says to the citizens of heaven, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Cultivate by God's help a zeal for the things of God. You know, many have deluded themselves, truly have, into thinking they are in the kingdom of God. But what did King Jesus say in Luke 6? Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things I say? There's a king in the kingdom, friends. And he is to be pursued. And you are to adore him. You are to love him. And your affections, right? What is the great commandment? To love the Lord thy God with all of your being. That is the heart of one in the kingdom of God. That is the kingdom rule. That is the kingdom charter. It is love and adoration and service to God where uh, the heaven consumes us. If that 
is you, believer, right? If, if, if you are following the Lord, again, imperfectly, we all need a Savior. But if the Lord has first place in your heart, you know for certain that you are a citizen of the kingdom. But what did the Lord say of those who say to him, Lord, Lord, you are my Lord, I, I follow you, but then are never to be found in the Lord's footsteps? Right? How do these people think, and maybe this is you today, who think that you are a follower of Jesus, and yet you never follow his pathways? What did he say to those? That the ruin of that house is great. And so if you are in the kingdom, friends, you, what you must do is not give Jesus second or tenth or hundredth place in your life, but first place. And ultimately, the great reward, as I have said over and over again, of the kingdom is that Christ the King is yours. Here's another psalm for you to think on. Psalm 142. Refuge failed me. You know, in this world, all things will fail you. No man cared for my soul. I cried unto thee, O Lord. I said, Thou art my refuge and my portion in the land of the living. That is how the true believer sees the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you truly knew him as he is revealed in the scripture, you would follow him. You would say, He is my portion and he is my refuge. So let me close with this. And I'll return to Christ's question that he asked three times What went ye out to see? And I'll apply it to today. What did you come out to see today? Did you come to see Jesus? Or did you come here simply to meet with your friends, to enjoy the fellowship meal, simply do your duty to come to church? Boys and girls, did you simply come because your parents make you come to church? Or did you come to hear of the glory of Christ? Did you come to see Jesus, the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world that takes away my sin? Did you come to adore him? And did you come to submit your life to him? Jesus asks, what went he out to see? The proper response is to be astonished continually by Jesus as the queen of Sheba, when she finally went out to see Solomon said, and she gasped saying, behold, the half was not told me. Thy wisdom and prosperity exceedeth the fame which I heard. And what did Jesus say when he compared himself to Solomon? Behold, one greater than Solomon is here. And if we don't have this response to seeing this beautiful, glorious Christ in the scripture, one who defends even the least in the kingdom of heaven, friends, there's something terribly wrong with our soul and we have much to repent of today. But if you have come to see Jesus, praise the Lord and praise him for who he is and what he does for his people. Amen. We'll leave Luke there for now. Please rise for prayer if able. Our gracious God and Father, the word of God has been preached. We pray that you would lift up the Son, that all men would flee to him, that they would cast their hope in him, that they would see the inestimable value of the kingdom of God, that kingdom of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. We thank you, Lord, that the kingdom is free to all who would take it. We pray, though, that we would all glorify Jesus Christ, though the kingdom is free to us. It has come at great cost to the Son of God. Help us to glorify him and praise him. 
Help us do our duty to the Lord faithfully, earnestly, sacrificially, knowing that those who honor him, he will honor in turn. And how we revel to know in the, in the hidden places in heaven, our Lord Jesus Christ defends us now, who sends forth his power into the earth to defend the church, but also pleads day and night before God the Father uh, for us, interceding for those who have faith in him. O Lord, our God, we pray that we would all flee to Christ, that we would all submit ourselves to him. Help us serve the Lord with gladness. We pray this in Jesus' name for his glory's sake. Amen. Amen. Our final singing.